Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paul LaFavre. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. And uh, today we brought into the G-Base one of uh, America's best, uh, a man named Hera, uh, a barrel-chested freedom fighter. Uh, Today he's coming in on Friday, the 11th of November. And so we're uh, we're almost to uh, one year on our podcast, and so it's awesome to have him um, coming on in, uh, we, he checked his six on the way in to make sure he wasn't followed. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's an honor to be here. Um, you know, just being able to talk to you guys who I respect so much. So thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, the time has come, you know, uh, as they say, there's, uh, ideas whose time has come and really this podcast I've been itching to get at. Uh, and I know you have a lot of experiences in Ukraine. So uh, for those of you who don't know Hera, uh, he's a man who is no stranger to Ukraine and the special military operation of President uh, Putin, uh, which we know that was launched on the 24th of February this year. So now we're in the eighth month of the Russian full invasion. Uh, before that, uh, the Russians uh, invaded uh, took Crimea and the Donbass. Uh, we know the those two breakaway oblasts there. Uh, but up until that time, it was a uh, really was not a full invasion. And so, uh, but our friend Hera here, he was there. Uh, so there's so many places to go on this a podcast like this. Uh, you have a lot of experiences that a lot of us want to know about. Uh, so I was thinking the best way to kick this off is really. Uh, just to say, hey, man, it's good that you're with us yeah, <laughs> and that you made it back alive. Uh, so how would you want to start this? Uh, well, uh, I think the best thing to say is uh, uh, just when I went there, um, uh, I got there late March. Um, I had heard the call from uh, President Zelensky uh, that he was forming the uh, International Legion uh, for Ukraine. And that he was looking for uh, combat veterans, especially Western combat veterans, to quickly uh, stand up the Ukrainian army, train them, and even assist uh, with their fighting, which uh, the Legion is out there doing right now. And uh, we've, we've found a niche for ourselves in, uh, in Ukraine, and we're doing good work. Yeah, so you, you answered the call. Now, I remember when that call went out, you know, I'm here uh, and like everyone else, like a lot of other guys, I wanted to go. I mean, I had my, uh, you know, the dander up. You know, I wanted to to go and, you know, defend freedom. I saw the invasion as evil, which it is. Uh, and it is uh, genocide. We have uh, I've seen these atrocities attacking, uh, you know, not uh, combatants, but just wanton destruction and all the like. But I saw that, and I wanted to go too, but you were a guy— who actually answered the call. Yeah, I, um, so, and I've had that discussion a lot with uh, some other veterans. Uh, I was in a good place professionally and privately to be able to go, um, and there's a lot of good, experienced guys who um, just aren't in that place. You know, uh, I would say for, for Ukraine, uh, if you've got to be here and fight for your family, you've got to be here and, uh, and fight your, your battles, uh, your everyday battles that, that you need to fight back here at home, uh, that's that's what you ought to be doing don't don't uh none of, nobody who, who saw that call and felt the itch and decided not to go i you know there's no blame there um a lot of the guys showing up the legion same kind of story um professional soldiers from from all over the place i mean guys from uh, you know not just america and sweden and the, and the rest of it but even guys from brazil from colombia wow um they're showing up and uh um, offering their services for a fight against evil um but yeah no if uh if you got um if you got stuff to settle back home, that's 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 your main fight. You got to fight for your family. You got to fight for your country. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because um, if you're a Ukrainian American, I mean, you're probably going to be drawn to go over there and help out, okay? Um, or if you have some sort of vested interest. Um, the other group of guys that you mentioned, which I think you're spot on, are, are sort of the um, professional warrior class guys that just, this is what they do for a living. This is the way they're wired. And, uh, you know, they go from one conflict to the next. Um, but for you, I'm not quite too sure which of those two categories, um, which one do you think you fall into, or is there a third that I'm unaware of? Oh, I'm a, I would say I'm a professional warrior. I mean, uh, you know, after eight years in the military, um, and, and that's, that's a conventional guy. So I was a scout, uh, in the U S army, uh, but I was a pretty motivated guy. And, uh, a big part of our training back home is to fight the conventional war against Russia, right? That's, that's the United States like primary doctrine. Um, so I thought I had a lot to offer as far as fighting a conventional war against Russia goes. Uh, and then, I mean, even after I got out, um, I was seeking opportunities in the private sector. I've, I've been to, uh, I was on, on the private, private security for hurricane relief in, um, in the U S Virgin islands and uh, Puerto Rico and, uh, some contracts in Colombia, places like that, as well as, uh, you know, I still um, help train uh, future warriors, uh, support training operations here in the United States. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff that you um, put together for these guys and, you know, it's, it's good stuff. It really is. And I'm sure, I'm not quite too sure the strength of the Ukrainian army at the time of the invasion. My, my, my guess is it was lacking. Yeah, the, uh, you know, in, in north of Kiev, where I was at, you had a quote unquote territorial defense, which is just people who were able to secure arms from the Ukrainian government that was just giving them out and then walking around the woods, you know, with with like torches, fires lit. You, know, you could see them from for miles and they're just trying to do their best, you know. Yeah, I think we had a we were fortunate to have a, a Christian uh, Hickey on a uh, some months ago, I can't remember how long it's been now, but you know, of course, he's not over there training. Um, he's over there doing some other things. But he, one of the things that he brought up to us was, you know, is just you can't help yourself, but you just want to help these guys because you, you know, you get down in the trench with them and you go, you know, you're just looking around and you're like, guys, I mean, you know, we need to get basic soldiering skills and just things that are going to help you survive. And he wasn't teaching anything high speed. I mean. He's 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 basically just trying to teach them the basics because these guys are just volunteers are just kind of flooding in. They've got a, a need to defend their 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 home, their families, their country, and, but they know nothing. Yeah, um, I get, I gave a class at the battalion level for urban operations, and I, I mean, what do I know? I, I'm not an officer, right? I've I've not been to a single war college. I haven't even been to you know IBC, right? So like. I, you know, the class was basically like machine gun employment combined with like some elements of breaching like Sosra and applying it to, you know, street to street house fighting. So, you know, not not Battle Drill 6, but moving up into the bigger picture for the battalion deployment. And those guys loved that class. They had, you know, they had no idea uh, that that training was they, they, they didn't know how to even begin to think about what they were going to how they're going to deploy you know, their, their, uh, 600 man element. And then this just gave them something that they could go off of. Right. Um, I guess the point I'm making is, I mean, uh, you're, you're a very humble guy. Um, and you know, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with what you do know and the knowledge that you do, uh, have that you've accumulated over the years of your service and experience, um, is, is sorely needed over there. I mean, <laughs> You walk over there and, and you're like the you know you're like von Steuben over there. I mean, as far as the, the things that you take for granted, the knowledge that you take for granted that you just absorb for your time in, in service is just huge to these guys. You're 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 enlightening them on subjects they haven't even uh, even thought about. Yeah, we, uh, we the veteran community man. We make fun of ourselves a lot, especially the the you know combat arms and below kind of conventional side of things. Uh, you know, we look up at, uh, at the special operators and we're like, damn, we suck. But uh, the truth is we are the greatest army in the world, the United States military. Uh, we're super organized. I mean, the, the, the operations we can pull off are unbelievable to any other military, especially on the logistics. And, you know, the fact we had our whole military forward deployed for 20 years. Right. And we're just used to operating like that. We're just that's just normal to us. 
That's right. Hey, so um, I wanted to read this uh, email you sent me, uh, most of it anyway. So it was. It, uh, I received it on the 4th of March, and it says, Paul, I'm taking a trip to Europe. <laughs> Depending on how the scheduling goes, I might not be back for a while. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that's where you were then. I mean, uh, so that was uh, what, what what happened after that? How did you get over there? And then, uh, I mean, can you describe to us, you know, that initial uh, channeling of uh, those forces and how they brought that in? What was it like? So, yeah, when I decided to go, you know, there's there's conflicts all over the world happening all the time. I, I don't attend all of them privately. Um, on this case, the Ukrainian government asked for combat veterans from the West. They, they specifically demanded, you know, put out that call. So if they didn't ask us to be there, I wouldn't have gone. So uh, they asked for us to go and they, uh, they provided information for us to go contact the embassy in Washington, D.C. And I uh, went to the Ukrainian embassy and said, hey, guys, uh, this is what I got and this is what I can bring in. They said, great. Can you can you leave right now? And I was like, <laughs> you know, I told them, like, no, no, give me two weeks uh, uh, just to just to learn, learn something about your country and uh, uh, get my bags packed. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they needed uh, they need personnel right away. Uh, so as soon as I made contact with the Ukrainian embassy, they, they wanted us they wanted us there right now. Um, they were in the middle of the Battle of Kiev, and uh, if they had lost that, they this would be a different picture. Uh, you know, we're celebrating Ukrainian assaults right now, but that wouldn't have been possible if we lost Kiev. Most uh, definitely. Uh, and on the news, we're seeing uh, the evacuations of the women and children, uh, the men sticking around taking up arms. And so that's when you arrived in Kiev, uh, you, that you saw that. You, oh yeah. Yeah. So you saw the, uh, it's just that, uh, the tension in the air, also rockets, um, uh, you know, you've had, uh, airstrikes, uh, artillery strikes, mortars. Yeah. yeah the, art- the artillery is nuts. So, I mean, uh, you know, I did Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, hit some IEDs, uh, you know, receive some fire, but it's nothing like what it is over there. I mean, we took a uh, grad rocket fire for five minutes straight. I mean, five minutes, everything was exploding. Wow. I mean, that's all. I mean, it felt, it felt like forever. That was the, that was the first time we experienced that artillery fire. It was, it was insane. Um, so the, the amount of lead that's being flung over there is unbelievable. Um, the way the Russians are fighting, um, uh, it's basically a major battle for logistics. They just, as many rounds as you can carry. It's like the fighting there is strange. It's like two sides just pull up with buses, kick out guys in ammo and whoever runs out of ammo first, you know, loses. So uh, plus, plus the artillery, plus the drones and the Russians, you know, we think the drone warfare is new, but you know, both the Russians and Ukrainians have developed that drone warfare through the, the conflict with the Donbass starting in 2014 and so that even was pretty well refined already. And I, I was, I've been constantly, I mean, I was upset at the time. I'm still upset that uh, there's no human fire observers correcting fire or, or making sure that people don't hit either friendlies or civilians. It's just all drones, just all drone observers pisses me off. Hey, so something, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, we certainly hear that a lot. Um, and uh, it certainly adds to the chaos and the lethality. Can you describe when you first got there and like your first job? I think you talked about that earlier. Just, you know, you were an instructor. Uh, well, first job was actually uh, uh, with a combat element in the Legion. Um, and, uh, you know, we did the one um, kind of clearing operation in uh, North Kiev. Uh, but basically the battle was over by there, by then. And uh, um, uh, that's where I got hit. And uh, we, uh, I pivoted, I, you know, I went to the hospital for three months um, hey, tell us, tell us about that. Uh, so you're, you're in a, you're, you're in a battle, mm. you get hit. What do you remember about that? Uh, I just remember the, you know, the big, my big takeaways were, uh, and I already knew this, um, but e- even with your, when you're with a group of strangers, um, you guys bond pretty quickly. Um, my guys were, uh, on top of my treatment and, and solving the, the, the lethal problem, you know, right away. Um, and you got shot, uh, just so everyone knows, uh, you got shot in the right, right, wrist. right wrist and the, uh, torso. Uh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, it hit twice with one bullet. So you're you're basically you're toting a gun. Yeah. And uh, you know, in your um, in that position, the bullet smokes through your wrist and then goes into your body. Yeah, just yeah, right through the side, <sighs> right on the right on the edge uh, of the of the arm. AK. Yeah, yeah, it's five four wow. five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So then, obviously, uh, as we as a fellow uh, wounded warrior, you know, when you get hit, you're not going to be just keep trucking on. Well, I thought that what, what I, I mean, I teach this uh, in classes. I teach, you know, it takes more, more than one bullet to take somebody down. Like you got to shoot them to the ground, right? I teach that, but I've, I've never had to, I've, you know, I've never had to do it that close uh, with somebody else in, in like, let's say inside our, uh, of a building. Um, and so uh, I was actually up for about a minute and a half helping direct my own care. Okay. Uh, yeah. Until and that's when the pain after about 90 seconds, I, I estimate that's when the pain got me down. And then I lost consciousness after five minutes. Definitely uh, stronger than me, I think. Oh, no, I was no. looking up at the ceiling, but you, you got uh, when you got hit, uh, you knew it. Oh, yeah. It stung. Oh, yeah. And uh, then you were your concern was um, now, you know, I think what you've talked about before is the medical aspect wasn't quite what we're used to here. No, so I mean, you know, we had uh, we had people from all over the world with uh, different priorities of training, especially medical as well. And you know, I had my uh, my my platoon medic did a pretty good job. Uh, actually, an American, um, what we call an American medic over there, but you know, essentially she was a, a like an ER nurse uh, here in the states, uh, and she took care. She she's the one who took charge of the care and actually made the correct interventions initially. Um, you know, we were just doing stuff like packing, packing the, the, the body with, with gauze. And, um, I remember I was a little upset with my, <laughs> my medic. I was a little upset with him cause, uh, he hadn't done, a uh, what I felt was a thorough blood sweep on the back. And I was sure that I had an exit wound. Uh, you know, I ended up like yelling at him and, and he, uh, he was like, Hey man, you caught that bitch, baby. You got it. You, you're good. <laughs> it's no exit wound. I was like, thanks man. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it was a hodgepodge, and uh, I was lucky that um, uh, we had uh, two two really well trained medics um, who kind of showed up uh, near that five minute mark and, and took care of me, got the got the right interventions in. Yeah, so from that initial contact, we're talking. This was uh, this kind of a saga from there, right? I mean, it wasn't like you're you're getting the ambulance and off to the hospital you go. No, no, I had a, six a guys, six guys moved me off the X. Um, you know, eventually got into a vehicle that I could barely remember, um, and a, a lot of it I I was unconscious. So I mean, a lot of it I've had to be told like, hey, you were uh, you were at the military hospital for two days, and they were just packing blood into you. You know, they're just giving you blood and blood and blood and blood, and uh, eventually you hit the uh, the specialist hospital to actually do the surgery and actually, actually stop the bleeding. So I was bleeding for like two days. Wow. Uh, now, yeah. Now, yeah. Well, sometimes we get, we move past this so quick, but as you're going unconscious, you know, you're shot. You're there as an American fighting for our allies. What's going through your mind as you know, you're actively losing consciousness. So I trust, I trusted my guys. Um, and, uh, they were basically, I felt, pretty at peace um, because I knew they were working on me. I wasn't sure if I was going to die or not, but I knew I I did believe my chances were pretty good um, considering that my men were all there. uh, They were taking care of me and uh, you know, it was kind of in in someone else's hands at that point. Yeah. You had, it sounded like you had a lot of camaraderie. We did already developed with these guys. Yeah. In a very short period of time we did. Yeah. So that uh, the one thing that, that uh, you had mentioned before that I, I love uh, about the Ukrainian people is this, just the spirit of the people, mm-hmm. you know, the resilience, the doggedness of the people, knowing that their cause is righteous. And then so that you, you guys just rode this wave and it still is happening there as you are you know, pushing back these forces, you're, you know, reoccupying areas, repatriating areas. So you, you had a sense of that. Yeah, um, the Ukrainians were uh, were really good to us, you know. And I've worked with um, Iraqis and Afghans and Jordanians and Saudis and Colombians and all these other you know, Koreans. I can't, you know, there's like a lot, right? Um, I am, you know, these are the best people I've ever worked with 
from another country. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because, I mean, U- Ukraine is a poor country. I mean, it's Eastern European yeah. country. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the one thing about a, uh, a place like that is the people ha- are more resilient because um, you have to be. Okay, it's they've got harsh winters. Um, this you, there's not a lot of money. It's not Western Europe. Um, they scratch out a living. Uh, we all know there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Okay, so uh, whatever the, the governmental system that they these people uh, struggle in, I mean that's what they got. And I'm assuming people like that um, are very thankful when someone comes and provides something for them or when someone is willing to uh, put their own life online, uh, this is their homeland. I mean, you expect them to uh, be fighting with everything they have and, you know, just like we would be doing in this country if the Mexicans or the Canadians came across the border, okay? Um, But I think they're, I mean, I think you're right. I think these people are just, are very tough and they appreciate the, the, the help. Well, these these people, I mean, for their, their entire as far as I can tell, their recent existence, they uh, done my little bit of country study. They work, in, they work for nothing. I mean, they, they resemble an African nation. They're like number one in food and food exports around the world, number five in grain exports in the world. And they're one of the poorest countries in the world. They, they just, they work for nothing. And, you know, it's funny, they had a, a, a perception of uh, foreigners, especially Westerners, especially Americans. And uh, um, that's basically where we're, we're kind of thieves. That's what they, that's what they think. And they're probably not wrong, you know, as far as their interactions with American businesses, I'm not sure how that actually works out. But uh, one of the things I would say to disarm, uh, you know, any Ukrainian that was, that was like, Hey man, I, you know, I sold my motorcycle to get my plane ticket to come over here, you know, and that, that would just be like, Oh, okay. So you're not like a, you're not here to rob us. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here to give back to you guys. And uh, they, they, they have a, they have a phrase. So talking about um, kind of who they are, and this phrase has kind of encapsulate can, encapsulates uh, Ukrainians for me. Uh, their currency is grivna, and their phrase is, "I don't have a hundred grivna, but I have a hundred friends." And that, that's how Ukrainians are, right? Their capital is in their relationships with other people, their relationships with themselves. In Kiev, I, I, you know, Kiev is a huge city, and I would, you know, after I got out of the hospital, I walk around. The, you know, we kick the Russians out, so people are actually out on the streets and constantly I would see people running into each other, saying hi, giving hugs. That's not something I would ever see in like New York city or, um, some of the other places I've, you know, I've lived, right. It's these people, I mean, they, they really care about each other. Um, and it's really, it's really great to see they're really good people. Well, the other, the other thing too, is, um, the, the Ukrainians were fortunate enough to have, um, America's best and brightest guys like you that were selling their motorcycles or whatever else to get over there and help. Um, you know, there probably wasn't a lot of snake oil salesmen uh, heading over there because there just wasn't any money in, over there. And, Not right uh, now, yeah. You know, what, what what we had over there and probably what we have over there now, uh, and I certainly have seen a bunch of these guys, you know, guys that are removing mines from farmland, uh, guys that are over there um, teaching them medical uh, first aid and how to take care of their buddies when they get wounded or, or injured, just like what happened to you. Uh, guys like you that are just they're teaching you know basic soldier stuff so they can stay alive, they can defend their country, blah, blah. So they're, they're getting the best and brightest. They're getting America's warrior class is what these guys are witnessing over there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so after you were shot, you said uh, basically you were bleeding for about maybe two weeks. I mean, that's incredible, number one, that you actually made it. Uh, that's incredible, right there. But. Yeah, yeah. Two days, two days of bleeding. Then they, then I, you know, I, I remember seeing the surgery lights going under. I guess I was, I was in surgery for two days, eight hours apiece. Um, and they did their best. Uh, you know, I still had uh, you know, some, some leaks that they had to drain. And <laughs> yeah, over the next, and I had a ma- I had a massive infection. Uh, and uh, you know that that was awesome. One hundred three wow. plus degree fever for days. Wow. That was. Is this on, is this on your gut? The the what was was the damage in your gut? Uh, it blew my liver up. Okay, so that's in a really nasty little place. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's why they were having a hard time finding the bleeding because yeah. I mean you, you had, that that had injured a lot of things going through there. Yeah, there's just a lot of stuff to hit. Mm-hmm. You know? well, luckily, it was just the one organ, so nothing else. The kidneys are good, and um, you know VA VA has got my back back here, and lab, yeah, it's all all looking good. I got checked up while I was home, so mm. yeah, yeah the. Uh, from what uh, the story I remember you told me before is 
something like uh, you got into this um, medical system, so you got uh, moved to Poland, was it? No, 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 no. Uh, uh, that, that's what I was uh, actually initially. I was I was trying to get okay uh, a ride out of there because I just I didn't understand what the medical system was and. Um, their interventions over there, I mean, it's Soviet medicine, so it was a little different than what I'm used to. Um, but once I got used to their system, um, uh, it was it was really good. The doctors and surgeons did a, did a really great job. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of Christian. That's what happened to him. I'm getting oh, my yeah. two uh, warrior stories <laughs> mixed. Yeah, no, I stayed I stayed in Ukraine, and uh, I was really happy with the care I received. Um, it was it was a great time, actually. I actually I'm really fond of the, the hospital yeah, yeah. I was in. You said something. Uh, you had talked about when you were recovering, you're on the gurney, you're in the hospital, and just how appreciative the people were and how they let you know that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was taking pictures with, you know, people wanted selfies with me and stuff. I got to visit the, uh, the Ukrainian wounded warriors and even uh, one of the wounded Ukrainian fighters who was in the hospital. He came up to me in the first week and said, hey, can I move in with you? And I was like, oh, yeah, man. Um, and, uh, we're still, we're still buddies. So, um, when I go back to Ukraine, I'm actually bringing him a ton of gear and, um, actually bringing a lot of gear back. I'm bringing uh, a couple spies goes for two sniper teams out there. I'm bringing an entire platoon's worth of cold weather gear. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to ask that because, uh, one of the issues that, you know, there are hot topics in the news obviously is, uh, duh, it's cold over there in the winter. Right. And it appears as though, uh, the Russians are, uh, purposely attacking the Ukrainian power grid. Uh, I don't know if you can, if you think that's what's going on, but it certainly looks that way. Uh, so I've been back home for a month. I'm getting ready to leave uh, soon here. And uh, I actually haven't seen the effects firsthand of what's going on with the, the blackouts in Kiev, although I'm hearing a lot about it. And I'm, I'm definitely, my friends in, in Ukraine are telling me about it. Um, it's going to be, it's already horrendous right now. Um, it sounds like, and it's not even, it's not even actually cold over there yet. I mean, starting to get that way. Yeah. And you were, you were there in March. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, I, I imagine that was pretty cold already. Yeah. It was a little, it was a little cold in March. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people there aren't really, they're not strangers to cold weather. No, no, no. Yeah. So I, I think we're, we may be hyping up the cold weather a bit much, uh, because they've, they've gone through worse. Well, the, the, what the hype, so the, so the cities, when you have, you know, a massive amount of people, children, old people, they're, they're going to suffer the most. I'm probably the military will, will generally be okay. Um, one thing I kept hearing is like, oh, don't attack Russia in winter. It's like, well, what do you mean by, what do you mean by Russia? Because I mean, these are, these are Ukrainians. They fight in cold too, man. Um, so, you know, the winter is not going to be kind to Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Ukrainian soldiers know how to fight in the cold and they're going to fight well. Well, I mean, uh, am I am I wrong that a lot of times uh, fighting is optimal in that part of the country just because everything's frozen and you can actually cross some of that ground that sometimes you can't because of the, you know, the rains and what have you. Yeah, you can yeah. get you can get away with a lot. Um, I'm going to see firsthand. I actually, you know, I've done um, some cold weather stuff in Korea and Colorado, but uh, you know, I'm going to get to learn about what the, what they actually do over there. I have some, you know, I have I've I've heard some things, but I haven't actually seen it and. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to see it. So, hey, um, can we go back to what you're talking about? Your initial, maybe your initial impression of the Russian soldier. Oh, sure. Just what was that like? We yeah. we we, we, all, we hear lots of things on the news, but what's that like? Well, in uh, North Kiev, they were just um, kind of running away. Um, a lot of evidence of uh, things like like a lot of drinking and uh, human <laughs> freaking human rights violations, basically. More or less. Um, not their best and brightest. No, not their best and brightest. And talking about their best and brightest, so, uh, you know, my, my guys, uh, they went to Mikolaev after uh, after Kiev. And uh, uh, one of my teams, got they actually got chased by a Russian jet, which is, you know, they, they you know, my guy, he, they think it was a MiG, but, you know, they, uh, my guy doesn't uh, know exactly, like, his vehicle ID just yet. At the time, he didn't. But uh, when I when I say they got chased, I mean the guy Strafed. the guy saw him. Yeah. The guy did three passes on him, not and, and dropped three bombs and missed all three wide. Wow. And uh, and that's pretty sad coming from a Russian fighter pilot entrusted yeah. with a million dollar piece of equipment. Yeah, and I've seen and you've probably no doubt you've seen this too is 
uh, GPS, uh, like taped, taped to the cockpit yeah. dashboard. Yeah. Uh, that's just interesting. So it just, it just seems like this was just, I mean, they're, the Russian logistics already look uh, janky. Mm. I think that's the best word, but uh, it, just like a rickety uh, hodgepodge of guys thrown in. Maybe that's why. I mean, we're just trying it's, to figure out. Yeah, we've, we've <laughs> talked about this because having, it's, it's amazing. having you know, joined the military during the Cold War and the big Soviet Union threat and um, you it's know, really not impressed. the superior. Yeah. Well, I, clearly things have changed, okay? Yeah. Clearly it's not the Soviet Union anymore. Clearly it's Russia now. Um, and there's a reason for that. Okay, so we knew they had some economic uh, hardships. Otherwise, they'd still be around, right? Um, and and there, there's been a lot of changes within Russia as a result of kind of going from that old Soviet system to the, this kind of new Russia that I still think they're kind of uh, developing. Um, obviously, the armed forces looks like it's suffered as a result of a lot of that change. And kind of like we were at the in the seventies, exactly. And I'm I'm Post wondering, Vietnam. and so a lot of us I think are sitting back wondering, okay, how much of this is strategy, um, yeah. where maybe we're just kind of roll our B team in here, okay, because yeah. we could probably get by with that and save our A team for the reserve or if we need it, or was that the best they got? Now I've heard that narrative, but you know I don't uh, I don't buy that's the B team. I think that was the A team. Uh, that was the A team. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and they tried some fancy stuff, uh, in, you know, in Hostomel and and down in the port of Odessa, and it didn't work out for them. You know, they they basically, if you study Russian, uh, if you look look at Russian manuals, like if you looked at American, if you try to if you try to think about how you're going to fight the Americans, you'd probably look at you probably should look at Baldur One Alpha, and you know with a with a a support, you know, main firing line and then a flanking movement. And then you can basically try and understand how you would fight the Americans, let's say. So if you're going to do the same thing with Russia, you would study their Russian defense and their, their offense is essentially the same thing as their defense. And uh, there's been no evolution on that. It's, it, it, you know, if you study it, it's, it's exactly the same, which is a sacrificial unit surrounded by a semicircle of heavy arms, Russian heavy arms. And uh, that's exactly what they do. And, you know, it's a... The, the concept of having a sacrificial unit is built into Russian military doctrine. Wow. And, uh, the, you know, my guys, let's say my guys were in uh, Severodonetsk. Um, they were just putting down sacrificial units <laughs> over and well, over. Well, here's the thing, too, though. So, so what if you know, this is 21st century? Mm. Okay. Uh, people have smartphones. Um, you know, people are on TikTok. It doesn't really matter where you're from. I guess the point I'm saying is that old strategy may have worked with um, a different generation, like a really tough generation that um, was a little more into uh, let's just you know duty honor country and let's just get online and do what we have to do for you know Mother Russia. I'm not quite sure if the 21st century male is is in the is is into the sacrificial unit stuff. Is that might be some of the problem they're having? Well, I hope so because you know the reality is, uh, you know, I think you can play like five hundred plus levels of Candy Crush. It's twenty twenty two, right? It's twenty twenty two, right? Yeah. If you if Russia, let's say if Russia wanted to invest in uh, in sewage, power, internet access in their own country, they just would never have done this. And that I mean that's that's Russia's problem is you know they they do live in a modern world. Uh, but they, you know, the, the whole reason for like this invasion is, is comes down to the fact that they've done no domestic investment in themselves. I know that's big picture, but like that's that's what's, you know, when you see the guys, you know, carrying off the washing machines in Bucha and uh, and, you know, and killing people, civilians over over New Balance shoes. And, that you know, that's that's real shit. Yeah. Um, they uh, they. Yeah, exactly what you're saying is like, you know, it's a it's a whole new world, man. And, and you're not you know, we've we figured out how to adapt to that in the American military. Uh, but uh, they they really haven't, and really they they all the all they've done for practice is like a small intervention in Syria or a single deployment of a small Wagner team to like Africa or something like that. They have no clue how to run their big army logistics anymore, um, and they can't even as we've seen they can't even make a move on their own border 
against a country that was like totally unprepared for them. Hey, so that's a, that's a great point that uh, some of our listeners may not know is uh, the original special military operation was, uh, you know, they took Crimea and they took the Donbass, uh, those two oblasts. And it seems like, uh, you know, well, when that happened in 14, Ukraine was definitely not ready. Mm-hmm. They were they were not ready. And it seems like that the uh, February 24th uh, invasion was like a part two, like a part deux. And uh, I think they thought that Ukraine would still do nothing. It seems like the Russians thought they were just going to keep, they were going to do and execute another Crimea and another Donbass and that Ukraine would just capitulate. And what happened was uh, it really fomented the, uh, the patriotic fervor of Ukraine and they, they had uh, they weren't ready for that. It seemed like Ru- the Russian special military operation didn't count on that. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, everybody knows about how like forward deployed the hostile attack was for the VDV, right? They also had psyops units basically in the middle of Kiev in, in a district called Oblong. On the first day of the operation, they had. T-72s inside warehouses. They rolled up the doors and just drove them into into the middle of totally unconquered Ukraine. So just in the middle of the civilian population, they had tanks so that they could take the picture and say, hey, the tanks are already in Kiev, right? And it didn't, it didn't count on the fact that, you know, they really, that, what you're saying is they, they thought that everyone was going to be like, okay, hooray, Russia's here. Uh, but those tanks were on fire in less than 24 hours, you know? Yeah. Um, they, you know, I don't know what they thought. I don't know what they thought they were doing. And, and the picture you're painting of the Russian soldier, it seems like, I mean, look, there was no declaration of war. Yeah. And uh, the common Russian soldier who were sitting on the border for months prior to that, uh, they really didn't know they were going to be invading. And it seems like at the last minute, they're like, okay, we're, we're going over. Uh, and, and so there was never really a lot of prep. Yeah, that's do, the, do uh, the... Let me ask you this, because, I mean, there's a lot of people that say... Really, Russia is only interested in the eastern portions of Ukraine, the Russian-speaking portions of Ukraine. You know, sort of a, a reuniting of a Russian cultural immersed part of Ukraine. And I'm not sure um, how much affinity those folks have with the rest of Ukraine. So I understand that there may be some uh, difficulty in that part of Ukraine. Yeah, the Russian-speaking zone. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I'm not quite too sure how Ukrainians look at that because I, I think maybe Russia's plan, at least I've heard, and I think it's it's plausible, that really Russia wanted to come in, um, you know, hit Kiev, not because they were interested in keeping Kiev, but get to Kiev to where, you know, they'll sue for peace. They'll kind of just give us this eastern portion, uh, and everything kind of just goes back to, you know, normal. Uh, but Russia's a little bit bigger and Ukraine's a little smaller. What are your thoughts on that? Or what do yeah. the people in Ukraine say about that? Yeah, so, okay. Uh, I talked to a lot of Ukrainians um, just to just to try and understand. Because you know, as a Westerner, a big question in my mind is just like, why is Russian? Why is Russian doing this? Why is Russian doing this? And, uh, uh, you know, the Ukrainians, my, you know, my, uh, luckily at the hospital, you know, these are some of the most educated people in the country uh, treating me. Um you know, they educated me on the Holodomor genocide of the 1930s. Uh, so just prior to World War II, uh, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union and uh, um, Stalin. Stalin, yeah. Yeah, his uh, starving. Uh, yeah, he made a man-made genocide. I mean, he killed like over half the population, um, you know, got the entire country sort of collectivized under the USSR. And, you know, several times in their history, uh, the, you know, Ukrainian language has been banned from being spoken in Ukraine, you know, that includes, you know, a couple of times in the 20th century. So, you know, Russia has always tried to, uh, they've, they've always tried to keep Ukrainians under the, under their thumb, um, saying that they're, uh, they're rats, they're, they're, they're meaning, they're meaningless people. Um, and they really view that not just Ukraine, they view everything. They view Kazakhstan, they view, uh, you know, all the stands as, as just, uh, vassal states of Russia. They, they view, if I understand this right, the Russians view Ukraine as a, a, a make-believe, like a made-up country. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Like yeah. a, a Western uh, puppet. Yeah, it's just made up. Yeah, and and that's yeah. not that's not a stretch if you understand the Russian mind, because really they treat Russians treat themselves that way, right? I mean, it's it's a 
it's still a kind of a serfdom culture that that they come from is they, they really don't believe in freedom uh even for themselves and so certainly not for uh an, an outsider that uh, so they really they they've used ukraine as a slave state for a lot of its history and uh the fact that they had to face uh you know an independent ukraine and ukraine basically has been in russia's face for a while now they've overthrew yanukovych in 2008 um, who is basically a Putin's Russian puppet? Putin's yeah. buddy. Yeah. Um, they they overthrew him again in 2014. Both times yeah. he had millions of protesters, um, and uh, you know the Ukrainians have, have really spoken out and said like, look, we are a freaking free nation that exists, you know, and that's that's freaking that. And that's, uh, that seems like uh, just part of this too. Uh, within these talking points, is it seemed like Russia, I mean, kind of a death thing. They wanted to keep Ukraine out of NATO. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, they had this in the fake news is, you know, Russia would, called, would call uh, Zelensky, you know, Hitler and Nazis and all that stuff. But that's really what it was, right? Yeah. That, so the 2014 um, Maidan Revolution, um, and if you don't know anything about, I mean, Winter on Fire is on Netflix. You can go watch and, and find out about it. Fantastic uh, documentary. Yeah, Winter yeah. on Fire. But uh, they, there was a... Basically, Ukrainians had a choice at that time whether they wanted to be a Russian vassal state or they wanted to be a free and independent people. And they they made a resounding choice to be free and independent. Uh, Russia has used recently since since their since their uh, independence in 1991, Russia has cut off natural gas supplies to Ukraine several times to try to control that country. And, uh, you know, in 2013, somebody went and finally explored the Black Sea around Crimea and found massive natural gas reserves. And that's where really this conflict goes pretty much to that, which is that Russia figured out that they would not be able to control Ukraine through its through its energy. Um, and they needed to launch it. So when we talk about Donbass, it's like, yeah, it's they're you know, they're closer to the border of Russia. Um, but. Ultimately, what Russia wants is control of the energy market in Ukraine because they don't want an independent Ukraine. Um, I haven't met. I've, I've definitely met people from uh, Lusychansk who are very fucking upset uh, with the Russian invasion. I've met a lot of people from Kharkiv who are upset with the, the Russian invasion. I really I haven't met a single Ukrainian who wanted wanted this and, right. and was OK with this. Um, so Russia, Russia, I mean, they're on their border. Russia's had a soft power takedown of Ukraine going for decades for like, like 40 years, they've been trying to do a soft power takedown of Ukraine. There's been a lot of propaganda that's come out as a result of that. So sometime, you know, you know, when you hit people for long enough with, with the kind of propaganda uh, that Russia puts out, um, you know, sometimes it, it works a little bit and I'm, there probably is a, some Russian sympathizers in the Donbass, but it's not the, it's not the majority. I, I highly doubt it's the majority. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely part of the narrative uh, that's spun in uh, the Kremlin is, uh, you know, this is uh, rescuing Russians outside of Russia. Yeah. And and so that's part of this milieu, this big pot of uh, reasons why uh, keeping on a NATO, obviously the natural gas. And uh, but hey, so something I wanted to make sure we get into this also is uh, the we, we talked about um uh, you know, the taking back of the repatriation of the, these areas outside of Kiev and what that was like. And just, if you can, we've heard some, um, some of the, of the genocide, but can you describe what that was like, uh, especially around the area of Kiev and having the, seeing the Russians tuck tail and getting out of there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we just, uh, I got to see, um, Again, that, that north north area of Kiev, um, just where they had the uh, uh, the Russians that come through. They they you know there's sh- there's shelling everywhere. I mean there's yeah. there's holes in everything, um, and so there's no there's not like a military target. Thing. No, it's, it's just no like there's no no way because the, the Ukrainian yeah. army like was not that big, you know. Yeah. So uh, cluster bombs, you know the you know. Summer homes, uh, you know, just get kind of in the middle of uh, churches. Yeah, of nice, schools. just these nice places, and there's just there's holes in every window, yeah. um, and there's uh, there's just kind of destruction everywhere. Uh, you know, there were definitely bodies in the street for a long time, um, but uh, you know, I got to see kind of a you know a day or two of that before uh, I had to go to the hospital. So, um, but but there's just holes there's holes in everything. Yeah, I imagine that 
the, the captured Russians, when, they, when the Ukrainians do get one, they have to really restrain themselves. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that. That's something I'm still working on uh, <laughs> over there. So uh, it sounds to me that everyone's kind of starting to understand that when you, when you capture people and you don't, you don't kill them, uh, that you can, you can end up capturing more people. That's, that's actually a, a cornerstone of like the U.S. military's yeah. uh, doctrine. You know, is like the, Ger- you know, what would the Germans say in World War II? They said, oh, it's, what would you tell your son is like, Surrender the first American you see. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so so they're still figuring that out. Now, I will say that there is a lot of evil uh, that still needs to be sorted out from the Donbass War in 2014. Yeah. Um, and anytime you get uh, two populations that are ethnically related, that's the most vicious fighting that, that there is. So, um, Hey, so where do you see if you I mean, you look in the crystal ball, crystal ball right now. And as a, you know, a armchair, armchair general, what do you see happening? Yeah. So I've thought about this quite a lot, which is, you know, one of the questions, one of the big questions now is like, what, what is winning for Ukraine or how do, how do Ukrainians define that? And, you know, they actually have options, right? Maybe they want to bring it back to the 2022 February border. Maybe they want to bring it back to the 2014 border, right? Um, definitely, uh, definitely, they're going to definitely take back Mariupol. I'll say that there ain't, they definitely are not stopping until then. Maybe they want, yeah, maybe they want to take back Crimea. Right. So they have, they have options for defining victory. And as an American, you know, I, I know what, uh, how important it is to define your terms for victory, right? Something we kind of failed in the middle East. And, um, one thing, the flip side of that is like, how do the Russians define victory? And they've got no hope. Like what, like, how do you define a Russian victory right now? Like what, what are they going to say? What's their stopping point? They, they don't they're lost they're completely lost right now they have no there's no way there's no there's no stop point for them that they could possibly define because it's just being they're just getting crushed yeah that is uh at this point you know i i don't i can't read putin's mind that's a scary thing but uh just how do you extricate yourself from this uh quagmire for for if the russians it's a quagmire i mean they've they uh, it looks like they're going to withdraw from Kherson. yeah right uh you have we're almost back to uh, the actual line of contact on the Donbass with the, the two breakaway low blasts, and then the northern uh, the extreme right, uh, you know, line is crumbling. Yeah. Slowly, uh, so it just all the uh, indications look like a withdrawal uh, back to at least Crimea and to Donbass. So, uh, yeah, what's isn't that, isn't that what everyone's worried about? I mean, you see the kind of guy that. Yeah, he's going to do whatever it takes to save face. Exactly. Is he a guy that can wiggle his way out of this with some sort of um, some dignity, some dignity so, for his for his country? And what what and uh, what how weapons does he use? And and yeah. and, and, the, and the really the more important question is, um, what does the West do? Does the West recognize this, or are we going to keep pushing this guy and try to figure out? You know, are we going to get him to push the big red button or what, you know, what's the deal on our side? So, so something's going right over there. I, you know, I had, a, I had a, you know, nice gas mask and two filters ready to go because I assumed by May that if we were actually holding the line that Russia would start dropping, uh, you know, ammonia and chlorine on us at least, at least that, right? Yeah. Maybe worse. I just, and, uh, you know, nobody's had to break that stuff out. There's like a small thing in, in Maria Pole where I think they employed, possibly employed one munition uh, but the investigation is still going on with that. But, you know, in Syria, they, they run gas like it's nothing. They don't care. Um, and so something's going right on the diplomatic back channel type stuff where they have not employed the chemical, at least. Um, and so I'm really I'm not worried about anything uh, unless that happens. And uh, God, I hope that doesn't happen. So uh, the reality is that uh, it, let's say if NATO wanted to put a no fly zone over Ukraine, this the Russians would have, just have no hope uh, on a conventional war. They've they've screwed. I mean they yeah. they can't they can't mess with it. I mean most of the Ukrainian army is is very inexperienced. A lot of the you know I have got to got to train these guys who are farm farmer to soldier in a couple of weeks, and uh, that's that's who's repelling the the big red army right now. And yeah. um, so you've got uh, you know eight you know, probably eighteen nineteen twenty year olds all the way up to what's a sixty. 60-year-old Ukrainians. Yeah, I have to stay in country. Yeah, yeah. so these are the guys that are actually manning the trenches. These are the guys that are uh, running and gunning. Ukrainian militia. 
Yeah, the, exactly. So let me ask you this. It's kind of, uh, I don't know. I've been thinking about this this week uh, coming up to this podcast, but are we, are we involved in World War III? Is this the beginning of World War III? Uh, so if the Ukrainians just solve this on their own, no, it's not. I mean, it has, you know, it has the potential. Definitely, there's already, you know, as far as I can tell, there's already been like some major uh, global interactions with the sanctions and, uh, you know, energy. Russia's been trying to find an energy fight against essentially Europe right now. And if we can, if we can solve this thing without involving official NATO forces, which is, Again, one of the reasons me and the rest of the guys who went over there went over there because we're not official NATO forces. Uh, then I think I think we're going to be okay, and I hope we're going to be okay. I mean, uh, you know, we live in a great peaceful world overall. You know, compared to I mean, if you look at the casualty numbers from World War II and World War One, I, I mean, nothing nothing stacks up. Uh, I mean, even Viet- how long was Vietnam? We lost seventy thousand guys in Vietnam, and that was a long conflict. We're already we're already at that number, unfortunately, for uh, for Russian Russian deaths uh, in this war, and that's uh, inordinate uh, comparative to the Ukrainian deaths. If I understand things, now we have civilian deaths, yeah. but just like Ukrainian combat deaths, I think are much lower than seventy. Yeah, that's the that's the report, and so it's hard to it's hard to know what the whole world is doing at the same time. Uh, but I will say for the six hundred, so I trained, uh, I helped train a, a battalion of six hundred dudes, and in in basically a month and a half of urban combat in Severodonetsk, those guys, all 600, they lost 13 dudes. And 10 of them were from one artillery strike. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and those guys were, those guys were, were militia. I mean, they had leaders who had fought in Donbass, right? But those guys were effectively militia that they just kind of needed the infantry to be there. So they did really good. I mean, that's one unit, right? And, and I know that the, there are bigger casualties, especially with the artillery, but the Ukrainians are adapting to all this very rapid, like very rapidly. And they're so motivated that the ground, you know, your lowest level guy is coming up with, with stuff that works. You know, he's not just, nobody's just following orders over there in Ukraine. Everyone is innovating on the yeah, front line. Mor- morality is definitely on the side of the Ukrainian. They're, they're, you know, they're the defender. Um, I can just see the, you know, I can, I'm just trying to picture the 20 something year old Russian guy. Um, he's trying to figure out, you know, why in the hell he's even there. Mm-hmm. Okay. He loses a few buddies. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's probably starting to feel sorry for himself a little bit. You know, he's kind of want to want to go home. Yeah. This is, uh, uh, this Ukrainian is, he's just getting more and more motivated. Uh, yeah. every little victory, um, every foot forward, um, they're, 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 they're being empowered. You got guys like you coming over helping out. They got a freaking bunch of uh, weapons and material flowing in behind them. They're getting more and more trained. I mean, this is not this is not looking good at all for Russia. I'm just I'm just trying to figure out what their um, exit plan is. I mean, I I haven't heard anyone like make this comparison, but like you know, Yom Kippur, right for Israel. I mean, they 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 retook. I mean, they they, they grew the size of their country by like thirty percent or something. Either that war or the 1967 where I can't remember which one, but you know, a bunch of guys teamed up to try to try to bully down Israel and, and they actually grew their country uh, because of their motivation. Uh, and Russia should be worried about that. I don't, I don't think they've considered what they're going to lose here. Yeah. Um, and uh, definitely I, you know, I, I feel terrible for the Russian soldiers. I really do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't like um, just putting down, you know, hungry dogs like that you know what i mean but that's kind of what we're dealing with over there yeah this and, is uh i was thinking about this um this week also this as napoleon once said uh the moral is to the physical three to one mm-hmm. i think this uh, this conflict so far is an abject lesson in that reality uh the more the more the morale and the moral uh is definitely in favor uh on the ukrainian side and i think that russian soldier knows that and in droves, they they do not want to join those ranks. It's just not a righteous cause. Right. Uh, you know, I, fortunately, I've been a part of what I would call righteous cause to include the invasion of Iraq uh, to what I knew to be a righteous cause. I still think that was uh, at least the, uh, the Kurds to, to be free, right, and the removal of a dictator who kills his own people, murders his own people. But 
but yeah, that, I wanted to ask you this too. This is really my last question. Uh, you're going to, you're getting ready to go back over there. How long do you see yourself there? Oh, de- definitely through the winter. I'm this time I'm on a, you know, I'm still injured, so I'm still recovering. Um, you know, my core needs a, a little bit of work, uh, before I can actually strap on a ruck. And even if I can strap on a ruck, one thing I got to learn, uh, <laughs> forcibly over there is, um, it maybe it's better for me to train, you know, 600 dudes than it is for me to, to grab, a, to yeah, strap a rifle. You're absolutely a force multiplier by yeah. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a good, uh, I think, I think you're thinking right. Yeah. So I'm going back on a training mission. Uh, and you know, I do, I do want to point out cause a lot of people, uh, I see this, I see this online, uh, especially, you know, I love, I, you know, I love America. I love my country. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned Iraq and, and all this. One, one thing I'll say about if people who want to make comparisons, Putin even makes these comparisons, but we didn't go to Iraq to annex any territory. Yeah. Right? We didn't, we didn't go to Iraq to, to, to put down, uh, uh, um, put down civilians and, and to, and to bomb indiscriminately. And, to, you know, having, having artillery batteries working a month straight to level buildings. No, no. I mean, I've, I, you know, I've watched Apaches have targets for four hours, uh, waiting for a one-star general to sign off on that, on that, yeah. you know, on that attack, because it, there's, it's just, there's no comparison between the two. I'm sorry, you know, online keyboard warriors that, you know, we, you know, we, we went to go solve a problem. You know, Afghanistan, I think everyone understands Iraq is a little rough, but at the end, at the end of the day, we weren't there to, to take Iraq and make it an American state. And that's essentially what, what's going on in Russia. Yeah. And we certainly, uh, we certainly do have a righteous cause. And, uh, for those, uh, soldiers that fight that, that definitely puts, uh, steel in their spine mm. so uh my friend i will be definitely praying for you uh while you go over there uh and i know our church will too uh, I, I know you not to be a, a big praying man <laughs> I, 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 I do think, uh, i do i do in the i do in certain <laughs> moments when i was on the when i was on the ground uh i you know believe me i was reaching out yeah at, like you say there's no atheists in foxholes oh yeah but uh <laughs> But I know that uh, I know you'll do well, and it's awesome just the thought of you uh, taking uh, our tactics uh, and then helping those people over there, those good people of Ukraine, uh, defend their freedom, defend their lives, and uh, and so that's always uh, a great cause. It's a righteous cause that you're going to go off and do. So uh, my hats off to you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, and uh, I look forward to we look forward to hearing to, hearing from you again, uh, maybe even while you're there. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it'd be awesome to get sort of a report. With the, you said something earlier that uh, made me chuckle a little bit. Uh, you said that. Um, well, I haven't always been the best follower of God, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it does seem like He has a purpose for me. He, yeah, uh, he, he does. And I and I think you're probably right. Yeah, he does. Yeah. But it's been great having you. Um, I. I appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Taking the time out and uh, Godspeed and be safe. Godspeed to you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Paul. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander podcast. And if you enjoy our content, we certainly hope you'll check out our sponsors. Uh, Blacksmith Publishing. Been serving the warrior class. People like uh, Jack here since 2013. We have great titles written by warriors for warriors. Uh, so if you're looking for a great reference book or just want uh, to unwind and, and, and enjoy a good novel, make sure you check us out, blacksmithpublishing.com. Uh, also, if you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, uh, even if you're over in uh, Ukraine, maybe a Pinelander podcast uh, patch on your uh, kit probably look pretty cool, uh, go over to pinelander1776.com. Got a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, and everything else. Uh, if you're interested in uh, helping develop our next country, our country's next generation of warriors, uh, consider donating to the American Agogi Project. Uh, this is something that uh, we're really passionate about, and uh, we are going to be officially launching this project uh, in celebration of our 10th anniversary uh, coming up uh, next year in 2023. So we're we're putting all the prep uh, right now, but uh, the American Agogi Project really really excited about it. Until our next meeting. Keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. And to each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Pineland.